Brand valuation can be a somewhat subjective measurement, but it can be broadly useful to ascertain what kind of asset a particular company or product's logo and other branding materials have become over time. This valuation represents something like the goodwill and esteem and respect held by the company in question, but it also implies a sort of standard of quality or desirability to consumers. How much more can you charge for a beverage when you slap a Coca-Cola logo on it? How much more likely is a consumer to grab the Coca-Cola bottle than that of a competitor? How much credibility and prestige does a logo carry? And how does that contribute to the long-term health of the company that informs that logo's meaning? The multinational tech company Alibaba, which was founded in China, and which operates within a huge sprawl of different industries, has one of the most valuable brands on the planet. Different groups do different brand valuations according to different formulas, but a cross-section of such analyses typically place Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft in the top three. Google and Visa come in at fourth and fifth place, and Alibaba, followed by its also Chinese competitor Tencent, at sixth and seventh. Notably, Facebook, McDonald's, and MasterCard generally fill out the rest of the top ten, with the aforementioned Coca-Cola ranking twelfth or thirteenth. That sixth-place brand, Alibaba, is a beast of a company. Founded in April of 1999 by the now world-famous entrepreneur Jack Ma out of his apartment, Alibaba began its life as a B2B, a business-to-business marketplace and received a $25 million investment from Goldman Sachs and SoftBank, among others, later that same year, based on the expectation that they intended to build the foundation of an e-commerce infrastructure in China, while also helping Chinese businesses export their wares around the world. Two huge opportunities that, if approached in the right way, could make everyone involved very, very wealthy. The company was profitable by 2002, and in 2003, they launched the online shopping site Taobao Marketplace, the online payment platform Alipay, the digital marketing platform Alimama, and Lynx, a logistics platform. Across the Pacific, Amazon and eBay were growing into major e-commerce powers, and eBay attempted to buy Taobao from Alibaba in 2003 as part of a larger expansion into the country. Ma was keen to keep things local, though, and that desire aligned with the Chinese government's newly energized efforts to keep foreign companies, especially e-commerce and tech giants from the U.S., out of the Chinese market. Alibaba got the go-ahead from the government to enter a partnership with Yahoo in 2005 after the former had grown a bit and established itself sufficiently within the Chinese market so that it could be seen more as a partner and less of an expansion-focused asset for a foreign entity to gobble up. And eventually, Alibaba ended up running Yahoo's business in the country rather than the other way around, as some analysts thought might happen. In 2007, Alibaba went public, 
on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. A few years later, it introduced a cloud platform, and then in 2010, it allowed some U.S. companies, like Ray-Ban and Gap, to open up stores on Taobao, allowing some U.S. companies to enter the market, but on Alibaba's terms. In 2014, Alibaba went public on the U.S. stock market with the biggest ever IPO, coming in at around $25 billion. And for comparison, Facebook's IPO back in 2012, which was one of the most hyped initial public offerings ever, only raised $16 billion. When Jack Ma stepped down as head of the company in 2019, Alibaba had become one of the most successful, by many standards, but also one of the most influential companies in the world. Part of that influence stems from the fact that the company is a jack-of-all-trades, behaving similarly to many other mostly U.S.-based tech companies like Amazon, which seem to just sprawl all over as many industries as they can, creating both vertical and horizontal integrations for themselves, and over time, building themselves a massive moat that smaller upstart companies have little chance of successfully crossing. Some of these all-encompassing companies eventually release apps that are meant to house a significant portion of their umbrella businesses, many companies. So rather than just being a texting app, maybe you can text, you can go into chat rooms, you can shop and buy things, you can summon a rideshare vehicle, you can rent an Airbnb-style home for the night, you can find and buy food, you can share memes, you can pay for stuff in real life, including mass transit tickets, you can play games, and you can buy and watch and listen to all sorts of media. This type of app, often called a super app, is more common in some regions than others. They've been strangely difficult to build and make stick in the U.S., maybe because of the number of gargantuan companies that call the United States home, maybe because of regulatory concerns, but in places like China, there are two or three, and Alipay and Tencent's WeChat in particular arguably fill this role for the majority of people who live in China and in a few surrounding areas. In Singapore, There's an app called Grab, and in Indonesia, there's one called Gojek, which play similar roles. The appeal of a super app is that it allows the maker of the app to own the activity that happens on their platform. This empowers them to make deals, to play favorites, to have all kinds of influence, but it also allows them to take a small piece of all the activity on that network. And if you're able to glean even a fraction of a percentage of essentially all economic activity in a region, that adds up. That's a lot of money. In Alibaba's case, this confluence of factors has resulted in an annual revenue of around $72 billion, total assets of somewhere in the neighborhood of $185 billion, and a business entity so large and multifaceted that as of the end of March 2020, They had 117,600 employees across their retail and e-commerce platforms, their artificial intelligence and cloud services, their financial technology wing, their live entertainment and online media businesses, their internet services and online portals, their private equity and venture capital firms, healthcare services, sports operations, newspapers and TV stations, and their investments in other companies, ranging from food delivery entities to co-investment in an airline to ensure reliable product deliveries to Russia. The nature of Alibaba and the moment in which it was founded 
has attracted a great deal of speculation from international analysts who wonder how possible it would have been to expand on this scale so quickly had the company lacked the support of the Chinese government, which at times is portrayed as merely having paved the way for the company as part of their larger effort to keep foreign companies out of influential positions within their economy. While at other times, Alibaba is seen as being a tool of the government that is ostensibly predicated on a free market system, but in the background is heavily supported by the influence and resources of a top-down, rising superpower that wants to succeed for many of their own non-business-related purposes. What I'd like to talk about today is another potential super app-based company that seems to be on a growth trajectory similar to the one that Alibaba enjoyed, but which is getting outsized attention because of the way in which that momentum is being built and because of where in the world that company is located. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Foreign Policy, and it's entitled, Why Google and Facebook Are Racing to Invest in India. In the 1960s, Dhirubhai Ambani and Champaklal Damani co-founded the Reliance Commercial Corporation, which focused on producing polyester yarns and exporting Indian spices to Yemen. In 1965, the pair decided to go their separate ways and split up the business, and Mbani took the polyester side of their efforts, spinning it up into a new business that he incorporated in Maharashtra, India, in 1966. After not quite a decade, the company had expanded into textile production, and in 1977, it had an initial public offering that was very popular. In 1985, the company massively expanded its yarn production capacity, and in the early 90s, it commissioned a petrochemical plant. Over the course of the remaining decade, the company expanded further into petroleum products, gained a surge of investment from overseas entities, becoming the first private company in India to be rated by international credit agencies, and it finished out the 90s by expanding into the telecom industry, petroleum gas products industry, and by opening up a new petrochemical complex which to this day remains the largest petrochemical refinery in the world by a fair margin. By 2001, Reliance Industries and Reliance Petroleum were India's two largest companies by pretty much every possible financial metric. And in 2002, these companies were merged into a singular Reliance Industries. They then bought up several local petrochemical competitors and discovered a massive new source of natural gas, the first ever by a private Indian company. Behind the scenes, though, in 2002, Dhirubhai Ambani died, and he didn't leave a will regarding the distribution of the Reliance conglomerate empire. This amplified existing frictions between his older son, Mukesh, and his younger son, Anil, who had already been running Reliance since 1986, when their father had suffered his first stroke, the second of which killed him all those years later. A power struggle between the brothers ensued, and their mother eventually had to step in to stop it, getting the sons to agree to divide the company up into two companies, with Mukesh gaining control of Reliance Industries and the Indian Petrochemicals Corporation, 
Holdings, while Anil gained the newly monikered Reliance Group, which contained Reliance Capital, Reliance Infrastructure, Reliance Power, and Reliance Communications, the latter of which included popular radio stations, movie theaters, financial service providers, and telecom interests, while the former, Reliance Industries, was mostly relegated to petrochemical companies and other such interests. That division in focuses didn't last, however, as Mukesh, shortly after the demerger was complete, invested in the Indian retail market under the brand name Reliance Fresh. By the end of 2008, there were nearly 600 Reliance Fresh stores in 57 different Indian cities. Reliance Industries, under Mukesh, has continued to invest in the oil and gas industry around the world, selling stakes in its own exploration and drilling and refining to other companies like BP, while also investing in the activities of other international petrochemical powers. In 2010, Reliance Industries made another seemingly orthogonal investment in telecommunications by allegedly rigging an auction through which 4G data communication signal rights were being sold by the government, working through a tiny, barely-there telecommunications company, and then buying that company as soon as it won the auction, which, long story short, allowed them to gain the right to provide 4G service throughout India for a relatively meager sum. Reliance Geo Infocom was founded in 2007, but the outcome of that auction and subsequent buyout of the winner massively expanded the reach of their service, which wouldn't be able to offer 2G or 3G or typical telephone services, but which would be able to offer the comparably more powerful 4G services with voice, telephony, digital, internet-based phone services instead of traditional telephone over that same spectrum. This 4G service went fully live in September of 2016, and Geo acquired 16 million users in the first month, 50 million in the first 83 days, and 100 million users by February 2017. As of December 2019, Geo is the largest mobile network operator in India and the third largest in the world, with about 387.5 million users. Geo has expanded its offerings beyond 4G as well, now offering fiber-based broadband internet for homes, public Wi-Fi hotspots, an array of mobile devices, including the very popular Geophone, which is a smart feature phone that featured prominently in an episode I did about feature phones back in 2019, if you're curious, alongside a line of affordable smartphones. They also offer a line of apps, including their own browser, news apps, health and cloud and chat apps, and many others. Reliance Geo Infocom is a subsidiary of a larger umbrella company called Geo Platforms, which itself is a subsidiary of Reliance Industries. So Reliance Industries up top, containing, among other things, a grocery store company and a bunch of petrochemical companies. Below that is Geo Platforms, and within that is Geo Infocom, the telecommunications company. Geo Platforms, that middle company, was set up in 2019 to contain tech and digital-based businesses that had been built or acquired by Reliance Industries. At the moment, Geo Platforms includes as subsidiaries the aforementioned Geo Infocom, Geo Mart, Geo Savin, Radisys, and Haptic, 
a telecommunications company, grocery delivery service, music streaming service, telecommunications hardware company, and artificial intelligence company, respectively. All of which brings us back around to that piece from foreign policy. Mukesh Ambani, again that was the elder son, has built a massive company out of his share of the company his father built, becoming Asia's richest man along the way. He's expanded in some strange directions, only to have some of those expansions make a ton of sense later. And in doing so, he's kept a promise that he made years ago when he first announced his intentions with Geo and getting more involved in telecommunications. That promise being to make the internet way cheaper than it was, because the internet in India was very expensive compared to other places around the world, in part because of infrastructural issues, but even more so because of the entrenched incumbents in the area that kept prices artificially high. In 2016, before geo-services were launched, a single gigabyte of mobile data cost, on average, 225 rupees, which was about $3 USD, which is very expensive for something like that in India. By 2019, the average cost of a gigabyte was down to 18.5 rupees, about 24 cents. Geo's arrival forced the other telecom providers into a price war, lowering costs and prices across the board. That pricing aggressiveness, on top of the abundant 4G signals that they offered, which compared quite favorably to the mostly 2G and 3G services of their competitors, made Geo the number one mobile operator in the country a position that it used to expand further into other sorts of communication services, in part by buying out competitors, including, in 2017, Reliance Communications, which was owned by Mukesh's younger brother, Anil. This piece gets into what's happened in the geo-platforms space since a funding round was announced, and pretty much all of the big players in finance and tech decided in a very short period of time that they had to be involved. They absolutely must get a piece of this company that looks primed to become very, very big, even bigger than it already is, and in the relatively near future. In practice, that means the company opened itself up to offers for investment from these other entities and agreed to sell them chunks of the company at an agreed-upon price on a case-by-case basis, kind of like a private, very high-stakes stock market offering. This is something that I've been watching with a strange fascination as money world people began to report upon these investments in this relatively unknown outside-of-India company as they happened, all within relatively quick succession which made it seem like there was some kind of land rush going on behind the scenes. And the shares of this company that were sold were sold at very high prices for quite small portions of this, again, outside of India, relatively unknown company. For instance, in April of 2020, Facebook bought a 9.99% stake in Geo Platforms for about $6.1 billion dollars. Silver Lake Partners, a major equity firm based in the U.S., bought a 1.15% stake in the company for $790 million. Another equity firm called General Atlantic bought 1.34% for $930 million. And KKR, another equity firm, bought 2.32% for $1.6 billion. 
In June of 2020, the Emirati Sovereign Fund bought 1.85% of Geo platforms for $1.3 billion. Silver Lake upped their stake to just over 2% for another $640 million. The Abu Dhabi Investment Authority paid $800 million for a 1.16% stake. An investment company called TPG bought 0.93% for $640 million. And another equity firm called Catterton bought 0.39% for $270 million. And Saudi Arabia's sovereign fund finished off the month by buying a 2.32% stake for $1.6 billion. In July of 2020, the major tech company Qualcomm bought 0.15% of Geo Platforms for $10 million. And Google, shortly thereafter, bought a 7.7% stake in the company for $4.7 billion. As of mid-July 2020, Geo Platforms has raised about $21 billion by selling not quite 33% of itself to these major international tech and investment entities. The big question on a lot of people's minds as they've watched this happening, and with such rapidity, is why? I mean, sure, it's a big company, and it's performing impressively well. But why this company? rather than any other telecommunications company somewhere else. What makes this one so special that these giants and very tech-savvy investors that could be acquiring just about anything with this amount of money would scramble to put together hundreds of millions and billions of dollars on very short notice to buy small chunks of this particular entity? There are a few theories floating around about this, and some of them are addressed in this foreign policy piece. One is the straight-up money play, where investors are expecting, as a result of this particular investment, to make gobs of cash, which is the hope for most such investments. But because of the kind of company Geo is, where it's located and who it's associated with, that assumption of money well-invested is ostensibly quite a bit higher than usual. The chances seem to be quite good because of that combination of elements. Part of the rationale here is that, though historically a lot of super app plays haven't panned out, and GeoPlatforms seems to be trying to become the super app, the all-powerful tech entity of India, the ones that have turned out okay have done incredibly well. And most of those are in areas with some type of top-down government that allows pseudo or actual monopolies to form with support from the government, which is potentially what's required for this type of thing to take shape and reach its potential. And some of those elements are in place here, in India right now in particular. SoftBank invested $20 million dollars in Alibaba back in 2000. And by the time Alibaba went public 14 years later, in late 2014, that $20 million had turned into $60 billion. The idea that this type of play could pay off by an order of magnitude or more, then, is not unfounded, and the potential of Geo seeing a similar outcome is heightened by Mukesh Ambani's place in Indian society. Like Jack Ma in China, Ambani has pull with the government, has a solid reputation as a business person, and has credibility in just about any space he might choose to jump into as he expands his reach further within the country and potentially throughout the region. Many of these investors probably see 
In isolation or as part of a larger bit of investment math, the opportunity for whatever they put in to come out much bigger in a relatively short period of time because of that additional context. That connection to the government and Indian economy and society, though, is also of value unto itself. When entering any new region, foreign businesses often face an uphill climb in terms of establishing brand recognition and in terms of getting local regulators other business people, and potential customers to take their efforts seriously. Facebook and Google, in particular, have both been struggling to achieve a solid toehold in India, and their comparably quite large investments in geo-platforms may be an effort to establish that toehold so that they will have a favored spot at the table as e-commerce and other online activities expand in the region and more money is then on the table for all of those involved to access. That might mean, in some cases, being a favored partner. It may mean getting the right people at the table when they want to do something else, solo, in the region, in the future. And it may just mean that they expect they'll get their app preloaded on future geo phones or services. There are a lot of ways this kind of relationship can play out and pay off alongside the money that they'll make off their investment more directly if things go well with the company and their investment dollars. Perhaps the biggest concern here, though, is that companies of a certain size have trouble when they become too successful. At a certain point, they use up essentially the whole of the potential customer base in a given region, at which point investors get nervous and they find themselves scrambling to squeeze more water from a stone each financial quarter because the market demands growth and they're running out of humans in those regions that would allow them to expand further. There's been a great deal of interest in the Chinese economy in recent decades, in part for this reason. China has a population of about 1.4 billion people, which for comparison is a little bit more than India, which has around 1.3 billion And both of those are far ahead of the U.S., which comes in at third place, with about 330 million people, about one-fourth the population of India. Now, if you were to line these top three most populated countries up by internet usage, you'd see the same ranking. China has something like 900 million internet users, India has around 720 million, and the U.S. has about 288 million. Important to know about those numbers, though, is that the percentage of the population that they represent is way low in the first two countries compared to the third. The U.S. has an internet penetration level of about 87%, meaning 87% of people in the United States are already regular internet users. In China, though, it's only about 63.33% of the total population that regularly uses or consistently has access to the internet and it's about 55% in India. Their overall numbers are only higher in terms of internet users because their populations as a whole are larger. What that means from a business perspective, if your business is getting people online and you want to get ahead of the ball, is that in the coming years, things will probably remain relatively steady in places like the U.S. There are not too many more non-internet users to pull in and make money from. But there is quite a lot of growth potential in both China and India. China has had a bigger economic boom over the past few decades than just about anyone, very much including India. But if China is playing harder ball than usual with the international community 
and outright blocking a lot of tech entities from elsewhere, then India begins to look a lot more appealing as a next step investment location to help bring the next billion people online, which to businesses means bringing the next billion potential customers online. Using this same logic, by the way, in another decade or so, if current population and economic trends continue, we'll probably see a similar land rush mentality to get people online in Indonesia, Brazil, and Nigeria. But at the moment, India is the population hub with the best chance, by some measurements at least, of allowing these growth-hungry corporations to keep growing. Recent issues related to Chinese aggressiveness in nearby territories, including India, the ongoing trade war with the U.S., and conflicts related to politics and economics in Europe, among other internationally powerful entities, have probably added weight to the argument that these companies should shift at least some of their attention toward India instead of China, and thus might want to spend more of their time and resources to get in good with the government, with the economic structure, and with the people of India. Geo-platforms opening up for investment probably seemed like the right opportunity at the right time, and there's a very good chance that Mukesh Ambani was aware of that desire when he started to put out feelers for investors. It will be interesting to see how this plays out, in part because it may be the dawn of a new tech superpower in a region that until quite recently has been somewhat held back in terms of access, and which has managed to do a great deal already, despite wildly imperfect circumstances. There may be an explosion of innovation and investment in India in the coming years because of this additional attention, and all the talent and desire that's always been there, but which lacked a reliable means of amplifying and spreading that talent and desire outwards. There will likely be a lot more government support for homegrown efforts in the near future as well, because of the ongoing and recently sharper-than-usual conflict between India and China, the Indian government seems keen to play some cards from China's deck in terms of supporting local infrastructure to keep outside influences at bay, and the reliance play could end up being a part of that larger aim. It may also be that this effort fizzles, though, and a lot of money ends up in the pockets of wealthy people rather than building much of anything. It wouldn't be the first time something like that has happened, and though it seems less likely in this case because of the entities involved, there's always the chance that something will go sideways, no matter how many smart people have put their money down in support of a particular outcome. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Superior, The Return of Race Science by Angela Saini. This book is a very well-researched and very compelling look at the science, or in many cases pseudoscience, of race and the difficulty of locking down a definition for race and the way the concept has been used throughout history to justify all kinds of things, sometimes with the best of intentions, very often with very malignant intentions. But if you're curious about the history of this very concept, but also the actual science behind trying to delineate different groups of people and looking at genetics and things like that, this is a very good place to start. 
So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Superior by Angela Saini. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcripts for this episode and every episode of the show at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, by searching for it wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.